It's said that when the Bodhisattva was practicing the ascetic disciplines, searching for the truth or freedom, he recalled the time when he was a young boy watching his father, the king, ritually plow a field for a bountiful harvest. And he remembered at that time when he was a young boy that he was sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree and he was attentive to the ceremony before him. And he reached a state of balance in his mind where he was very tranquil and alert and his mind attained to an exalted state, an absorbed, concentrated or collected state. And he recalled this time and the experience of the kind of happiness he felt at that time and realized that that might be the way to realize the truth, to discover peace, rather than the torturous ascetic disciplines that he was undertaking. And it's important for us to recognize that in that state of balance, that the Bodhisattva was not striving, he didn't have any particular goal in mind, he wasn't looking for something in particular, but he was just attending to the present moment in a very alert yet tranquil way. And his mind found the way. We've all heard of the goal of practice, whether we understand it for ourselves as freedom, uh, awakening, liberation, happiness, peace, calmness. However you imagine the loftiest attainment that you might aim towards through your practice, it isn't what we recognize first in our experience. And often so much of our experience in practice is the wallowing, if you will, in the ordinary, the mundane, the boring, the familiar, that has and seems to have very little to do with the exalted states that seem to be the goal of the practice we're undertaking. And so much of our attention is really in how to integrate these two understandings of what we're led to believe and what we're directly experiencing and how to bring them into balance so that we can move forward on this path. I remember when I first came here at IMS in 78 to be on staff. In one of the first days I was working here, I was up in the attic of the Catskills and I and another staff member, Rodney Smith as it happened to be, were insulating the ceiling. And it's a dirty, hot, it's a nasty job. But we were having a discussion about uh, Nibbana. And <laughs> you've got to realize I had done two retreats and I probably didn't know too much. But nevertheless, I remember saying to him, or I should say, a couple of years ago, he reminded me, I said to him, we were having this discussion, and I exclaimed to him that I had no doubt that in this life I would attain and realize some profound understanding of the Dhamma. Of course, I didn't let my deluded ignorance uh, impede my confident aspiration. And it was only years later that I realized I didn't have a clue what I was talking about. <laughs> Nevertheless, I had a lot of confidence 
Later that year, during the three-month course, I was on staff, had been there for a year now, or nearly a year, and we were told that there was a Burmese monk traveling the country who was going to come visit for a week and offer teachings. Now, I had never seen a monk before and didn't know even what monks were or what they did. But Jack, who was teaching that three-month course then, gave us a little history. And he said that this uh, monk had been a, a scholar and somewhere in his early adult years, 30s or so, he decided to practice what he was teaching and he wandered away from his monastery and found a remote place where he could do his practice. He had gotten instruction. So he found this cave. He went into this cave and he was doing his practice. And he would only come out to do his alms round in the morning and go back in the cave. And he went into the cave and he stayed there for 16 years. And after 16 years, he realized that uh, his teacher had died. And so he left the monastery, or he left the cave, and he went to the monastery where his teacher lived. And sure enough, his teacher had uh, just recently passed away. But as soon as he had passed away, the story goes, uh, two cobras came out of the forest, parked themselves on either side of the corpse, and wouldn't move. And nobody dared to approach the corpse, because cobras. Well, when this monk who had emerged from the cave came out, got to the monastery, he walked up to the corpse, the cobras took away, went away, and they realized that he probably was worth listening to. So he spent a year uh, taking care of his uh, teacher and um, finding a new abbot for the monastery. Then he was had enough and he went back to his cave. And he went back in his cave to do his practice. He stayed another 17 years. At which point he decided to come out for some reason and he spent 33 years in the cave and he started teaching. Well, he was coming to... Uh, share the teachings with people like yourself who were here on the three-month retreat. So he came and he sat up here and uh, he was just this little wizened old monk and he taught pay attention to the breath. <laughs> I guess he'd been doing that for 33 years. Well, I tell the story because when I, when I heard about him and his practice, it moved my idea of the middle path in his direction. Now, what I thought was the middle, once I'd met him, just took, it took a quantum leap. And so for each of us to find what is the middle way for us, as the Buddha taught, the middle way between indulgence and renunciation, between energy and passivity, between internal and external, what is the middle way? So tonight I want to speak about the middle way, balance or equanimity, as we practice it, as we discover it, as we live it. Much of practice is this refining or the refinement of our knowledge of what is the middle path for us personally, through our own efforts to realize the middle path. It is said that there are 10,000 joys and sorrows in this world. The experiences that we all know or hear about are just tremendous, just immense. But in a way we could say that these 10,000 joys and sorrows are really what are called the worldly dhammas, the experiences of those who live in the world. And there are eight of them. Praise and blame, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, 
fame and disrepute. Every one of us has experienced each of them to some degree. It isn't possible to live life and not experience them. Even the Buddha, after his enlightenment, was liable to experience these states of mind. He was falsely or slanderously accused of impregnating a woman. One year during a famine, for three months, he was offered nothing but uh, horse feed for his own food. He suffered headaches, backaches, and the discomfort when his body died. And so, even attaining perfect balance of mind, freedom from reactivity, we still get to experience gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute. We should recognize by now that it will happen to us. It shouldn't be a surprise when we too suffer or feel these experiences, or when we discover that someone we know is experiencing them. This is the way it is in life. To live in the world means to experience these things. Life is a contact sport. We are constantly in contact with sights and sounds and smells and tastes, with people, with ideas, with external conditions, internal conditions, and our own mind. And much of this contact is competitive, it's adversarial, it's harsh, it's tiring, burdensome. And this sport is both an individual sport and a team sport. It's us against them, it's me against you. Trying to secure for ourselves more of the pleasure, the pain, I mean the pleasure, the gain, the praise, the fame, and to avoid the pain, the loss, the disrepute. We learn this game, and we learn how to play this game from our parents, from our teachers, from our peers. And it seems that our internal coach is always on our side. But this game is rigged. The teachers that we've been taught by are using an old playbook that didn't work last season. The referee is blind, and to win or lose is to fail. Because happiness is the true goal. Letting go is the strategy, and balance of mind is the coach. Because it's balance of mind that allows us to approach every situation and not get caught. It is said that uh, Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, that the ordinary man or woman sees life's experiences as either blessings or curses. But a spiritual warrior sees every experience in life as an opportunity to grow in understanding and compassion. Don Juan went on to teach Carlos that the spiritual warrior lives their life with impeccability. Whatever it is they choose to do in life, whatever it is that you choose to do, whether it's this retreat, or a career, or write a book, or raise a family, or nothing. That is your choice. But to make it a path of awakening, you must do that work with impeccability. Understanding that, in the great scheme of things, it probably really doesn't matter whether you write that book or not, whether you fix that tire 
Whether you paint that car, paint that picture, write that note. In the grand scheme of things, not too significant. But if you do it, to do it with impeccability means to gain the power and the understanding that comes from living your life with awareness. I was speaking to some uh, colleagues recently, and they were telling me about one of their friends who's also a teacher, Dharma teacher. And this teacher was told by his teacher to lead a retreat. And so it was announced, and at the appointed day, this teacher went to teach this retreat, and nobody showed up. So he turned to his teacher and he said, well, what should I do? Nobody showed up. And he said, you lead the retreat as if it was a full room. And so he gave his Dharma talk to no one. Went through the motions of the retreat with no one there. Understanding that to live his life impeccably, that's what was required. Even though what he was doing was absolute folly. And yet to still do it. We've heard of the Buddha's awakening. We understand that it might be possible for us. We may even have acknowledged our aspiration. Can we walk this path? Can we undertake the endless days of sitting and walking and breathing and stepping? with that careful attention, with that willingness, really, to be fully present with our life. After all, it's our life. We, we really have nothing else but this moment. And if this moment goes by without you, you've lost that opportunity. And so how to stay engaged with what life is offering, to really open to and taste the experiences of life, without drawing back, without withdrawing into whining or blaming or wishing it was otherwise, but to recognize this is it. This is all that our life is offering us in this moment. It's not for us to control. It's not for us to say, it's good, it's bad, it could be better, it could be worse. It's just what it is. And to recognize that in each moment, life is just what it is. And to open to that. And to accept it. This is our challenge on this path. A few years ago, went to a retreat in uh, the Northwest, where Kamala and I usually teach. And on a Friday night, it was a nine-day retreat. On Friday night, we all arrived and started the retreat. <clears throat> Saturday came, and we into the first day of practice, and it went fairly well. Sunday came, and similarly, second day of retreat. About the third day of retreat, you know, it starts getting a little painful. The mind finally gets there, and it gets a little uncomfortable, and you know, we call it the maximum dukkha day, day three. Well, at six o'clock that morning, in the adjacent property to where we were, all these machines, bulldozers, big trucks, big, big machines that go driving through the forest arrived and started to clear-cut the property right next to the meditation center. And it was within 50 feet of the meditation hall. Now, they have these machines now that are, they can go into a forest and they drive up to it. Well, I guess they drive up. They drive up to a tree. They grab a hold of the tree. They pinch it off the bottom, turn it, and send it through a chipper so that the whole tree in, you know, two minutes is chipped into little pieces of wood. And these are big trees. 
It is the most loud, obnoxious, nerve-wracking sound you can imagine. And I don't know how many acres it was, but they planned to be there for two weeks. And they were going to work from six in the morning till four in the afternoon every day. And we were there for a nine-day retreat. Well, it was, uh, as you can imagine, it uh, provoked some uh, reaction. <laughs> we had a lawyer sitting in the, front, in the front row who spent the first half a day drafting a cease and desist order for, <laughs> for disturbing the peace. I had to talk him out of filing it with the local court. There was one woman on the retreat who had just gotten out of jail for having chained herself to an old growth tree and, and she was there. So she had some, uh, she had some reaction. <laughs> you can imagine the anger and the rage and the indignation and the you're spoiling my retreat thoughts that went by. And even the, the owner of the retreat, actually I think they talked Kamala into it, the owner of the retreat talked Kamala into going over to the neighbor and asking him if he would consider putting it aside or stopping the uh, tree cutting for, until we could finish our retreat. Of course he didn't. He had his own reasons. But for the first day or so, we were in pretty, pretty strong reaction. But the Dharma is suitable for every situation. <laughs> so what did we do? We said, well, this is the situation. How can we best deal with it? How can we bring our minds to a place of balance where, or understanding? How can we respond to this rather than react to this? So we moved the schedule around. It will start, we'll start and do our major practice before they come. During the time we're there, we'll go sit in the dining room, which is a little further away, and uh, we'll do a lot of metta. And, <laughs> and gradually we begin to make the adjustments in our day, the schedule of the day. We stayed up longer in the evening, got up earlier, and took long nap in the afternoon, and shifted our schedule, and really worked with feeling the intensity of the feelings we feel. And of course on day one it was intolerable. We just would stand there and watch those machines. It was fascinating really to watch these machines just devouring the forest. And it wasn't only the sensory stimulation, it was the feeling that this, it wasn't really an old growth forest, but it was old trees in this forest, were just disappearing. No one left that retreat early. Because in it they found some way of relating to oppressive conditions with a balanced mind. And even though we might think, I can't stand it, we are all old enough to know, and you don't need me to remind you, that life is unfair. That's the way it is. And it's a, it's a powerful understanding to come to. Life is unfair. That's the way it is. Can we open to that? Because when we can, we can accept, or I should say, acknowledge anything. It doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't mean that that's what we should choose. It doesn't mean that there isn't someone uh, that's doing something harmful or that we even don't feel pain. We do. But that's the way it is. And to open to that gives the mind a foundation for stability that we're often not encouraged locate. How many people tell you to just, this is the way it is? Rather than blaming, 
demanding, expecting, being indignant, raging. Those are all acceptable in our culture. That's our conditioning to be opinionated, to be partisan, to be very demanding. And yet in spiritual practice, it doesn't work. Our practice is to really reframe our expectation of what life is offering us. You know, the news, the daily news is really a, just a catalog of unbalanced mind in action. And we should reflect that whatever we experience, whatever we can imagine, whatever we see happening to others, it's inevitable that we too, at times, will experience that. We shouldn't be surprised. They will occur. This is the way things are. John Semedo says, the mind is like space. There is room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know that space in the mind, it's emptiness. Armies can come into the mind and leave, butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through, come and go through without us being caught in reaction or resistance. Once we know that space of the mind. Bringing some balance to our ordinary life experiences. Expecting the extremes. And learning how to tolerate it. Learning how to open to it, how to experience it. How not to get caught in reaction. Liking, disliking, picking, choosing, but rather understanding oh, this is the way it is right now. And we can open to it. We can find a way to be in balance with even the most intense unpleasantness. There's another way that we develop balance of mind equanimity in the mind, and that is through upeka practice or equanimity practice as one of the divine abodes. And I think tomorrow evening there'll be a, a, a teaching, a practice on developing equanimity. And it is really the strengthening of this one mental state called tetramajatata, which is the, the, the mind in the poised mind. It's strengthening the poise of the mind in response to whatever is arising in your experience. And the way to do that, and the way that we practice this equanimity, is to reflect that, to reflect on the fact that as it says in the chant, the metta chant, mawiga chantu kamasaka. It means beings are heirs of their karma. What that really means is what we are experiencing, the pleasantness or the unpleasantness of it, is a result of the intentions of our previous actions. whether it's true or not, the law of karma, the law of cause and effect, to understand that what we are experiencing is the result of and the lawful conditioned effect of 
previous actions, is a powerful understanding for acknowledging and accepting what life has to offer. Because it, cut, it pulls the rug out from blaming, from self-judgment, from, uh, what would you call it, ineffective striving. It, it places the understanding that this is a lawful experience. This is, this is the natural result of previous conditions. Whether I understand it or not, things are unfolding according to a lawful guide, a lawful rule, if you will. What I experience for joy and sorrow is not because of you or someone else. It's because of my own previous actions. This present moment is the junction between the past and the future. What has happened in the past has happened. It can't be changed. It's gone. Seeds have been planted which will produce their fruit. We can't do anything about that. We have to experience the fruit of what we've planted. And we experience it in each moment as pleasant or unpleasant. But how we respond to that experience, if we respond out of deeply conditioned habit and we get angry if it's unpleasant or if we get seduced if it's pleasant, that is planting the seed for our future experience. This is a simplified view of the law of karma. If we know that, if we understand that, who can we blame for our experience? And does it do any good? But if we imagine, if we, if we, can, if we can grok it, if we can open to it, accept it, that how we respond in the present moment is planting seeds for the future. It gives us every encouragement to be aware. To be, uh, to be balanced, to be non-reactive. I don't mean to say not engaged, but not reactive with aversion or desire, or attachment or clinging. But to see this moment for what it is, pleasant or unpleasant. To see it arise, to see it pass away. And to know that in that moment we have planted the seed for our future experience. In this way, we could say that we are the architect of our own future. When I was in Burma in the monastery in 1988, there was a period of time just before I got there where the dictator, Ne Win, who'd been a dictator for 30 years, I think, prior to that, announced that he was going to step down. And the people in Burma got so excited, <laughs> thinking that here was our opportunity, the dictator was going to step down, and here's our opportunity for a new, a new government, a new leader. And so for about six, six to eight weeks, they were exuberant in the street, just so enthusiastic and so hopeful that something different was going to happen. And then after some confrontations with the police and the military, the overnight, the military took over. They reasserted control and put a stop to all of that. And there was this oppressive, I mean unbelievably oppressive fear and terror 
and disappointment and rage and frustration in the population. It was just unbelievable. And I was, at that time, trying to practice Vipassana. And Vipassana, as you know, is staying present with what's arising. Well, it was just too painful to, to do that. So I started to practice uh, Brahma Viharas. And I started with metta, loving kindness, during which time Upandita asked me if I was having, was able to practice metta for the generals who had taken over. Well, <laughs> I was not. <laughs> but he encouraged me, he said, you know, those generals want to be happy. Out of their ignorance, they are doing what will make them unhappy, which makes others unhappy too, but makes themselves unhappy. But they truly want to be happy. And practicing metta for them is wishing for them to be happy. It isn't condoning what they do, but it's wishing sincerely that they be happy. In time, after much mm -hmm, balancing of mind, I was able to bring to mind different of the generals that I had seen pictures of, or who I imagined, and what they had done, and even what they had done, terrible, and was able to see them in my heart and wish, sincerely wish for them to be happy. It took a tremendous amount of mm, steadiness of mind not to fall into my conditioned reaction of, Anger, irritation, frustration, feeling disempowered. It is possible to bring the mind to balance, to find a way to be at ease, really, not reactive to even these extreme conditions. Keeping our life and our practice in perspective is essential. When we get entangled in the minutia of our life, when we get really caught up in the, mm, the struggle with our body, with our mind, with our restlessness, with our wandering mind, it's helpful to step back, to, to, to refresh our mind with the long-range perspective to look at what we're doing, to, to reconnect with our aspiration. Why are we doing this? To understand that every moment of attention, of practice, of effort, chips away at you know, the reactivity in the mind that causes so much suffering the delusion in the mind, the habits of the mind. And even though we may be entangled in it and feel totally overwhelmed by it, practice still works. And so to get that broad perspective again, to, to refresh our mind. Yet on the other hand, if all we're doing is kind of hanging out in the won't it be great when space, uh, it's time to uh, find the breath. You know when you see a tightrope walker and they're walking on this rope or this wire up in the air? They don't just walk on it. They carry this long pole. And this long pole extends way out on either side of them. And it's very heavy, usually. And the reason they do that is that a slight adjustment holding that pole, you just move your hands along the pole a little bit and it shifts the center of gravity substantially. You shift it the other way, and it moves you back into the center. It's much harder to get kind of blown off the wire, or to fall off the wire with this heavy pole, because you can maintain your balance with a little adjustment in one direction or another. And our practice is like that. To maintain our balance in practice, we need to have that pole. We need to know the ends, the extreme ends, 
the goal, the highest aspiration that we're reaching for. And we also have to know this moments, the insignificance of this present moment. And move our attention along that spectrum in order to maintain balance. Finding the middle path in our daily life, monitoring or moderating our reactivity, developing equanimity through recognizing the lawfulness of karmic action and karmic result, understanding this is the way it is and coming to acknowledge and accept that. There's a third way that we develop and recognize balance in our practice, and that is through insight, of course, but it's maturing our insight to where we're not knocked off balance with whatever arises, where we can remain poised. Or as they say, equanimous towards all formations in the mind. You know, in the initial instructions in practice, we encourage you to connect and sustain your attention on your chosen object with a bare attention, a non-commenting, non-reactive, no agenda attention. We don't notice it. But every time we do that, we develop a little bit of equanimity. It's intentional. We're intending not to react to whatever we're experiencing. But because the effort is so strong, and the connecting is so hard, and the mind's habits are so persistent, we don't see that we're actually developing balance of mind, non-reactivity. Finding some balance between subjectively indulging and objectively observing, the mind can open. But in this opening, as we connect with our experience, we find, of course, our deeply conditioned habits, our reactivity our liking, our disliking, our preferring, picking and choosing, our anger, what provokes us to anger or to indulgence, to imagining. And in this awakening to our habits, we get caught. The first time we see some unfamiliar discomfort in the body, it provokes a tremendous amount of Irritation, concern, alarm, fear. But now that you've been sitting with that pain for four weeks, five weeks, two months, however long you've been here, it's a familiar, it's pretty familiar. It doesn't provoke the same concern, the same anxiety, the same fear, the same dread, the same, does it? I should say, sometimes it doesn't. But in that familiarity with what provokes us, we actually come to a more balanced understanding, a more balanced relationship. And after one time, we still have a lot of reactivity. After a hundred times, we have a little less. After a hundred thousand times of experiencing there may be a little left, but not much. And in this way, we slowly decondition the reactivity of the mind. Whether it's aversive or attachment. We decondition that reactivity, and this gives rise to steadiness of mind. As the mind is less reactive, 
it becomes steadier, stiller, more open, more able to tolerate through developing the stamina to experience unpleasant without reactivity, to experience pleasant without indulgence. This takes stamina. This is the development, or this is through the development of equanimity, balance of mind. When we're able to put aside our emotional reactivity, of course, the mind gets happy. The mind loves to do what it does without hindrance. If the mind can know experience without the hindrances, it gets joyful. It gets tranquil. It gets clear. It gets excited. It gets confident. It gets really connected. And in this, there is this phase of experiencing what is called pseudo-nibbana. And pseudo-nibbana is all of those pleasant spiritual goodies that we come across in practice. Now, they may last for a short period of time or they may last longer, whether it's thrilling or chilling or calm or clear or tranquil or confident. They come because of good practice. When we're able to put aside our reactivity, we open to these spiritual goodies. But when we do and we think, aha, this is it, now I've got it, we're stuck. This is a place of what we call corruptions of insight, where our insight actually stops at a place of good practice. Actually, our mind is out of balance again. When we have excessive faith or confidence, we start imagining a life of extended Dharma practice, organizing retreats, possibly teaching in the future, at least writing a book. And it's all good Dharma thoughts, it's all good wholesome intentions, and yet it's being stuck in this imbalance of confidence. When such thoughts arise in your mind, don't be so quick to just dismiss them. Or I should say, if you can recognize that you're indulging, don't be so quick to dismiss them. But instead, turn your attention to the experience of excitement, of confidence, of creativity, of interest. Because that's what's going on. The content of what you're excited about, that you're confident about, that you're creative about, the book, the retreat, Dharma practice, ordaining, whatever it is, not so important. What is important is recognizing the inner qualities that have arisen because they are wholesome qualities. An excess of concentration or tranquility is sitting with that hundred-yard gaze. Perfectly happy not to move even when the bell rings. It's kind of mm, oozing along on that nice, smooth sensations in the body, not noting anything. <laughs> it only comes from good practice. But if we don't turn our attention to what the experience is, we're caught, we're stuck. The insight, the development of insight has stopped. And so we need to again turn our attention to this experience, to feel, to name what we feel in the body, to recognize that the mind is very still, to recognize that we find it very pleasant and we enjoy it, to note stillness, tranquility, subtlety, enjoying, pleasant, because that's the experience. And to move on, to to grow in understanding, to bring the mind back into balance, we have to see this. Name it. Let it go. 
or when the mind is, is, is filled with, uh, out of balance with excess wisdom. This is, this is not the wisdom, insight wisdom. This is more like conceptual wisdom. When we're just excitedly uh, understanding or reviewing or comparing our experience with books we've read, texts that we've read, seeking uh, confirmation through uh, textual readings or, or collecting quotes from uh, Dharma talks or uh, excitedly thinking about the Dhamma. This is an excess of wisdom, conceptual wisdom, conceptual understanding. And even though it may be good Dharma thinking, it's actually a hindered state of practice. This too needs to be noted. Turning your attention, again, to the experience of this excitement, this energy, this... uh, clarity of thinking. You know, sometimes the mind is so insightful. Whatever it looks at, it really sees deeply into the wisdom of it or the understanding of it. You can see the three characteristics in everything. But this is all conceptual. This is an imbalance in the mind. It has to be known, noted, or the, or the practice doesn't progress. Or when there's an excess of energy, These are the spiritual faculties I'm talking about, the five spiritual faculties. Faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. When there's an excess of energy, we only want to sit. We don't need to walk anymore, we think. Sometimes we don't want to eat. We don't want to sleep. We have so much energy. We're excited, strategizing, scheming, thinking about further Dharma practice. This is an excess of energy where the mind is striving, it's holding on, It's too agitated to move on. It's stuck. And so that too, that experience too, every pixel of it, how the body feels, what the mind is doing, needs to be attended to, needs to be brought into focus, acknowledged in its moment of experience. Let it come, clearly know it, let it be. In this way, by being mindful of these experiences, the spiritual goodies, if you will, then we bring our mind back into balance. Balance our energy with our understanding. Balance our uh, tranquility with our energy. Balance our faith with our understanding. When they're brought into balance, then the mind can grow. In time, the mind finds a way, finds the way to be in balance with each experience. Whether pleasant or unpleasant, initially we react with aversion or desire or attachment. But in time we can put aside that, that imbalance and come to a Stillness, really, of seeing these experiences without reacting. In time, though, insight gets even sharper than that. And we can see the object without any reaction. Not quite right. See the object before a reaction to it occurs. And then rather than letting the mind run to even a wholesome response, the mind doesn't run at all. It sees the experience. It sees the physical, the mental, the pleasant, the unpleasant. Determines that it is not something to be attracted to or repulsed by. And in that determination drops, doesn't relate to it, with attachment, with desire, with aversion, or even with mindfulness. When this happens, the mind moves through, or I should say, experience moves through the mind extremely rapidly. Objects become so, come through so quickly 
they're obscure, they're diffuse. They can't be known clearly, distinctly. Rather, what is known is the balance of mind, the stillness of the mind, the non-reactivity of the mind. And it's there that our attention rests, in the stillness, in the non-reactivity of knowing, letting all things go by, in a blur, really. It's a way of being at ease in the knowing. Not just being at ease with what's known, being at ease with the knowing. Letting the mind land on the way things are. Letting the mind rest in the way things are. Earlier this year, I was sitting up at the Forest Refuge, and it was in uh, February when it was in the winter. And there was one day in the middle of February or towards the end of February where it was quite sunny out. So I went outside to sit on the deck. And it was, you know, you know sometimes you just step outside and things just, everything just lands. It's like the mind, that the chatter in the mind just stops and you see how it really is. This crystal clear day, sky is blue, wispy clouds, someone running a chainsaw way over there, the whine of a jet going overhead, the wind blowing through the, pre, through the pines. I was drinking a cup of tea that was hot while a cold wind was blowing. It was just like, that's the way it is. I used to think the middle, the middle path between a cup of hot tea on a cold day was warm, but it's not. The middle path, the middle way, the, the, the middle of a hot cup on a cold day is hot cup on a cold day. It doesn't come together in this mush in the middle called warm. You still get to experience the extremes, but in a balanced way, not preferring one over the other. That suchness of this is the way it is, in the stillness of the mind, where the mind's not chattering away, not making a story out of anything, but just experiencing this is the way it is, moment after moment. Balance of mind. It said, the great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. When neither love nor hate arises, all is clear and undisguised. If you wish to know the truth, then hold no opinion for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is a disease of the mind. So let's sit for a moment. Find that balanced suchness. The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Who can they harm? The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Who can they harm? 